The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded at Capital Weekly's Conference on Housing. Our presentation today will feature the state of the rental market. And our speakers will be Senator Rosalisi Oshua-Bo, Assemblyman Alex Lee, Deborah Carlton of the California Apartment Association, Alex Landsberg on behalf of the State Building and Construction Trades Council, and Shanti Singh of Tennis Together. Our moderator for today's panel is Lindsay Holden of the Sacramento Bee. We'll go ahead and get started in just one moment, but first, let's thank our sponsors for the event. Support for Capital Weekly's Conference on Housing was provided by the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, Lucas Public Affairs, the Whiteman Group, and the California Professional Firefighters. Uh, if anybody just showed up, I'm Rich Eisen. I'm Editor-in-Chief at Capital Weekly. Thank you for being here for our final panel of the day, uh, which deals with the state of the rental market. First of all, thanks to our moderator, uh, Lindsay Holden of the Sacramento Bee, of course. She's going to let everybody introduce themselves, or she's going to do it. We'll see. That's up to her how she wants to do it. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Um, this is the last panel of the day, but I'm really stoked about it. Um, we're going to be talking about rental housing, and I kind of wanted to kick things off um, with a little bit of census data for you. Um, so about 44% of Californians rent their housing, and that's compared to about 35% uh, of people nationwide. And if you spend more than 30% of your household income on your rent, you're considered cost burdened, and more than 50% of tenants spend and 30% or more of their income on rent in California. So clearly this is a significant issue for many Californians. Um, and I know previous panelists kind of talked about um, wanting to own a home, that, that being the gateway to the middle class. And obviously that's a California dream for many people. But you know, for many residents here, just finding a safe, affordable rental is out of reach. Um, and so I'm excited to dig into this topic with our panelists. I'm going to introduce them. Um, so we have Senator Rosalicia Ochoa-Bogue. Um, we have Deborah Carlton of the California Apartment Association. We have Shanti Singh of Tenants Together, um, Alex Landsberg of the State Building and Construction Trades Council, and we'll also have Assemblyman Alex Lee who'll be joining us later. Um, so maybe you all could just briefly um, talk about how you, know, you interact with rental housing through your work. Maybe we can start with uh, Senator Ochoa-Bogue. We'll talk about <clears throat> how do I associate or how do I um, interact with rentals? I'm a realtor by profession. I've been a realtor for 20 years. As a matter of fact, I just um, renewed my license as a realtor. So working with a lot of people in my district uh, with regards to either purchasing homes uh, for investments or trying to help locate homes for renters in our area. As far as um, policy-wise, in this, in this capacity as a senator, we've been looking a lot, uh, working with uh, reviewing and assessing different bills that impact both uh, landlords and tenants um, in California and looking at the factor, especially with COVID, it was elected in 2020, so much of the policy had to deal with um, having rental protections for our renters during COVID, which were necessary for sure. 
and I was uh, actually quite um, pleased to see that uh, we also last year included um, the ability for landlords to be able to um, to participate in getting some of securing those funds um, for um, for their rents. So protecting on both sides, which is I think good policy and a good balanced approach um, to the rentals. So those are the the efforts that I have in interacting with the um, with tenants. Go, you can go ahead, Alex. All right. <clears throat> Thank you, everyone. Uh, Alex Landsberg, Research and Advocacy Director with the San Francisco Electrical Construction Industry and working with the state building trades on much of this housing-related stuff. So in, in terms of the building trades, I think, you know, you, we're, we, we just build this stuff uh, at, at the end of the day. I think that's the way a lot of folks uh, see it. But I think, you know, uh, Lindsay, you shared some, uh, some stats, so I will too. Um, while 44% of Californians are renters, at least my quick uh, review of census data showed that more than half of construction workers um, are are tenants themselves. So the the issues discussed here are absolutely relevant for uh, for, uh, for our members and, as well as uh, the construction workforce more broadly. Um, as I think Mr. I don't know if he's still here, as Danny Curtin said uh, earlier in. Um, in his panel, UC Berkeley Labor Center did some uh, research on where construction workers are sort of in the socioeconomic ladder. And what, what they've shown is that they're disproportionately impacted uh, by, uh, by, uh, by housing uncertainty and, and just really rely on um, public services in order to, to be able to meet, meet their needs. Uh, and lastly, I think, um, the, the last thing I'll, I'll put out there is that our members recognize that we need a vibrant, uh, vibrant construction market happening in order for uh, for them to go to work. That's how it, that's how it works. Hi everyone, Shanti Singh. I am the legislative director at Tenants Together. We are a statewide coalition of I keep saying 50, but I think we're almost at 60 at this point because they keep forming uh, local renters' rights um, organizations across California. That includes housing justice organizations and communities of color and low-income communities. It includes tenant unions. It includes legal aid organizations. We're we're a pretty big tent and we're growing. Um, what, you know, I'm the legislative director, but most of our work is, is organizing, um, organizing renters across California to correct, collectively assert their rights. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I think we're gonna talk about representation, and now that we have Assemblymember Lee here to talk about the renters caucus, I won't steal his thunder. <laughs> um, but, you know, we do have, a lot of what we're trying to do and change at Tenants Together is the lack of representation for, for renters. And we have 17 million renters in California. That's bigger than almost every U.S. state in population. I sometimes joke that, you know, if, we, if everybody scattered around, we'd basically be able to have a significant block in the U.S. Senate, just California renters only. Um, and so we really are trying to elevate those voices because we have a lot of, there's a lot of us. Uh, good afternoon, Deborah Carlton with the California Apartment Association. I'm the executive vice president of our public affairs program. Um, primarily, uh, legislation is our focus, uh, compliance. Um, we represent over 50,000 rental property owners, 
and managers of for-profit and non-profit housing in California. And even though apartment is in our name, our largest uh, group of owners are single family and small mom and pop owners because we know in the state of California, if you look at um, where the rental housing is situated, it is in your single family homes, your duplexes and fourplexes, and that is over 50% of the uh, population of the housing here in California. So it's a very large mom and pop, if you will, uh, type of ownership in California. So we believe that it's important for us, of course, to make sure that there is compliance and forms that they understand what the laws are here in California. So that's our primary focus uh, for the California Apartment Association. Awesome. Uh, Assemblyman Lee, I was just asking everyone how they interact with housing or rental housing through their work. So you could talk about that, just brief introduction. Okay. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Alex Slee. I represent the 24th Assembly District, which is Alameda and Santa Clara County. I live in San Jose, which is the second most unaffordable city in the nation, uh, and I am um, one of six renters in the entire state legislature, so 5% of the entire state legislature are renters, meaning folks who do not own any property and rent a home. Uh, so I'm proudly representing um, the 5% of us here, I guess, 5% of us <laughs> in the state legislature. Awesome. Thank you all. Um, so I'll start off with a question about this kind of the state of the rental market. Um, so the COVID pandemic obviously had a significant impact on the rental market, tenants and landlords. I hesitate to say the pandemic is over, but as conditions shift toward kind of a new normal, I'm looking for a little bit about what things are looking like from all your various perspectives. I think we might want to start maybe with Shanti could talk about what tenants are facing, maybe then go to Deborah. Yeah, um, well, I'll start by saying I think there have been a lot of premature declarations that COVID is over when it's really not for a lot of people. Um, you know, all the economic issues that we're having notwithstanding, uh, during COVID, you know, there has been job recovery since, like as we've been moving through COVID, but at the same time, that job recovery has not been even um, disproportionately Unsurprisingly, it's disproportionately black and brown renters who are, you know, who are already struggling with low wages. And I know we had people talk about 50 years of historically low wages. But um, when we looked at, you know, when we look at unemployment, um, a lot of a lot of people's hardships, their economic hardships that they had through COVID, through no fault of their own, continued well beyond. Um, even the sort of rental assistance or the eviction protections or the programs, uh, the state programs that were on offer expired. Um, and so we're still dealing with the, you know, with the repercussions of that. People are still really hurting. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we're pivoting back to, I guess, our regularly scheduled housing crisis. And in terms of what tenants are pushing for, it is, you know, permanent protections. We've, and despite the horrendousness of COVID, we have actually made a lot of progress on that at the local level. Awesome, yeah. Deborah, you wanna share? Thanks, those are good points. Uh, you know, COVID changed everything for, especially the way in which we um, are operating. Finding uh, employees is extremely difficult. Um, vacancy rates, uh, fascinatingly enough, despite the fact of what we all hear about rising rents, rents are not rising, rents are declining. Our vacancy rates are huge, especially in some areas of the state. Uh, in San Francisco in particular, vacancy rates are very high. In fact, some of the owners are indicating they're gonna have a hard time meeting their uh, requirements either for mortgage payments um, or other types of bills that are uh, necessary. I think what's fascinating, we do still have um, 
as, as Shanti indicated, some protections at the local level, the most uh, that, are, that are in place, uh, Los Angeles, Alameda County in particular, I think um, our biggest challenge in some of those areas, especially Alameda County, um, you didn't have to prove that you had a hardship. So many tenants have lived there for uh, two years rent-free. And uh, while that was very necessary in some cases, um, some of those owners were not paid because those tenants didn't qualify uh, for any rent relief. Um, we did a survey recently. On average, the owners who responded um, are behind $30,000 in rent, um, and those tenants didn't qualify. We know that there was a lot of money available. The governor made a money available uh, for individuals to apply. The owner and the tenant had to apply together. Um, if the owner didn't apply, the money went to the tenant. So there were protections in there. So I think um, part of the conversation going forward is what do we do next? As uh, Shanti indicated, how do we provide protections that are balanced um, so that we make sure that uh, we don't have housing that is lost? Because in the end, um, tenants are not going to have that housing if it's lost to the bank or if they, the uh, owners sell it to owner-occupied, uh, owner-occupants. So I think we need to find a really good balance going forward. Gotcha. Maybe we could have our electeds talk a little bit about where things are at in the legislature um, with housing policy. I don't know if Senator Ochoa, you want to talk about that briefly? We just had an oversight hearing with regards to um, housing. We're working on, on that uh, and trying to understand the different um, struggles that we're having with, with housing. But in general, it's interesting to hear. <clears throat> so on one end, we have an increasing vacancy in rental units. On the other side, we have about 3 million units short of housing in the state of California that we need to build. Um, and I think that has, on the housing part of it, right, <clears throat> I think ideally we'd want to have enough housing available so that people could actually afford to purchase a home and not have to rent. I think the, you know, as someone who has been a realtor for 20 years and as a daughter of immigrant parents, I ran on the foundation that I believe that owning a home is ultimately the, the American, is achieving the American dream. I know many immigrants who come to this country, their dream, I mean, if you own a home and it doesn't matter, a starter home, a, me, a medium-sized home, the idea of owning real estate is part of that immigrant experience and, and, and desire. So, but then there's some, like my mother, who did not want to own a home because she didn't want to, you know, as a single mom, did not want to care for, for a property. So I think, and I mentioned this in their oversight committee, much of the question talks about home affordability <clears throat> because it comes down to that. It's how do we make housing more affordable? Because rents will be reflective of the cost of either building those apartment complexes or purchasing that home at a mortgage rate that needs to be paid off. So ultimately, the supply will have a huge impact on the ability to make uh, housing much more affordable, which directly impact the rental, um, the rental space, especially um, when we're talking about the smaller um, mom and pop sh uh, owners of properties that 
uh, put it out to rent. I know there's been a lot of policy that has allowed to expand ADUs, for instance, on, on properties having more flexibility to be able to build on those and restrict local control within those parameters to increase supply. So we've seen that in the past two years since I've been in the, in the legislature. <clears throat> I know we've worked on policy to make um, the renter's um, uh, credit much more of a balance both from the landlord and from the tenant's perspective which in my district as I speak to uh, property managers have been um, was actually very much welcomed on that end because we had a lot of renters who were not taking advantage of the of the ability to to receive those funds so on the landlord side they were very grateful property managers were very grateful that that came into being last year um, Let's see what else. Um, I think we need to work on policy that streamlines the process of um, building housing so it's not so cost burdensome, uh, which directly has an impact on consumers, whether we like it or not, it will have a direct impact on that end. With that in mind, I think CEQA at the foundation of construction and building these homes and property would be a huge impact in uh, making housing much more affordable. And there's other areas and spaces in, within that space that would need to be um, addressed. Awesome. Um, Assemblyman Lee, if you want to speak to this as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the greatest framework we have to keep in mind when dealing with the housing crisis is we do just as much production we need to do, we need to have as much protection. It's technically a three-legged school, but I'm simplifying protection into one, one side of it is that we need to, of course, have more opportunities, more homes for people to be able to live in, but at the same time, those homes cannot be so out of reach for folks that they cannot keep them or ever get into them. That's an important dual aspect of uh, how we should tackle the housing crisis. The Renters Caucus is going to be advancing a series of bills that uh, I will let individual authors debut them as they come. I'm sure, Deborah, we will talk about them. Uh, <laughs> there'll be a lot of bills for us to talk about, but I think right now with the renewed interest of the Renters Caucus, there's gonna be a lot more uh, protection bills advanced just to have parity of production bills. I will never diminish the importance of reduction, but we also need to protect the people that live in them now and also have have a um, have stability in their lives. I mean, I'll give you an example right now, and often I compare, obviously home ownership is one of those coveted goals that many people want to have. I want to have that one day, uh, but I live in the second most unaffordable city in the country, and the average home price in my neighborhood in Berryessa in San Jose is $1.5 million, $1.5 million right now. And funny enough, actually, even on the rental side and sometimes the ownership side, a condo a townhome and a single, more traditional single-family home are all roughly within the same margin. They're only a couple, I say couple, a couple hundred thousand dollars off of each one, one another, and that kind of shows you the disparity in which we lack supply, but also lack attainment for so many people. And I'll give you an example of this is that, so a lot of our programs, which also we talked about the uh, emergency rental assistance program, they apply to people who are 80% area median income or under. In my county, in my county, home county, 80% AMI for a family of four is a family that makes $117,000. Uh, so when we start making sure that we can, you know, a lot of these families are really struggling to even be able to do that. Even with 117 grand um, a year, that's really not enough to even get a two bedroom in San Jose. And also example, because I torture myself by going on Zillow every now and then to see what is possible for me to buy a home, is that if someone, say, hypothetically, had $100,000 earned every year, to get 
to afford the down payment, I have to save my salary for three years. I have to be very frugal. No more avocado toast. I have to save my, my, uh, my, all of my salary for three years. And I want to also point out, you know, we talked a little bit about the emergency rental assistance program, is that very early on, I had flagged with some of my colleagues that the, very, the first concept of it, where it was like, if a tenant applies, you get a certain amount, and if a landlord applies, you get a certain amount. And at the end of the day, we settled on where 80% of the rent uh, rent that was owed would be paid by the government to the landlord. I has always argued that 100% should be paid. Um, there, clearly, as we kept amending and changing the program, we saw all the flaws in it. And it is one of those precedents where we have now set during an acute crisis, the government can step in and say, let's acutely make sure that landlords are whole, but also keep people housed. And I think we've really dropped the ball in this program. We could so much more improve it. The simplest thing is to make landlords whole is giving them 100%. Simplest thing, right? 20%, I get that, super unfair. But also making sure that maybe only one party needs to apply instead of these, you know, when you had disagreements between a tenant and a landlord. If one person just said, hey, look, I'm gonna apply to the government and that money will go to you, landlord, you know, it's for you. So you can keep me housed, it should have made it a lot more simple. So we have experienced a lot out of the pandemic where we can do have an active intervening role in keeping people housed. And I think we need to continue to do that, especially as the state of emergency winds down and uh, individual counties start going back to normal or back to practices. We need to think of the state as how do we prevent a wholesale uh, eviction crisis and homelessness crisis, but also where now landlords are thrust into the opportunity of, oh, they got shot for 100 different uh, clients or different customers. Again, it's a really awful experience for all. Yeah, Alex, I think you also wanted to add something. Uh, thank you. So uh, I'm the odd guy out here uh, in some respects, but, but I do think it's important that we talk about this stuff or that, that when we think about this, that we're guided as much by data as we are by vibes and anecdata and our, and our sort of our own personal individual experiences. I think one thing that a lot of folks may not uh, recognize and they may not understand is that fair market rents from the, uh, identified by the Department of Housing and Urban Development from 2017 to today have gone up from about $1,000 on average statewide, about 1000 1050, I don't have, I only have a chart um, that I made, so I don't have the exact number, uh, to almost 1400. Uh, in, in this period, I, I also, you know, I just want to come back to something that Assembly, uh, Assembly Member uh, Wick said. Um, within this period, we've done 275 streamlining bills and code changes. And what has that resulted in? Uh, multifamily housing construction is flat, so it's really not affected by all that. Uh, and, and the massive development that we've seen um, from SB 35 have been, has been in affordable housing precisely because the state has decided to invest in it. As long as we have a housing system tethered to, uh, to somebody needing to make a fairly significant profit in order to move forward, the entire idea that we are actually going to be able to lower rents or even stabilize them while increasing production doesn't seem to make sense. It's just, you can't have both. So I, I think part of what this really forces us to do is really think hard and think creatively about things such as um, uh, social housing bills and, and, and not just subsidies, but really taking a, a, a fundamentally different way to approaching how we build housing for California's workers, uh, working families, and, uh, and yeah, and, and just people who need it. 
Yeah, gotcha. I, so kind of the renters caucus has come up several times. And so I do want to talk about that a little bit. Assembly Menly, um, you're part of this new renters caucus. And I think that kind of opens up a broader discussion about tenant power in the capital. And obviously tenants have historically struggled to push legislation that benefits their interests. Um, and AB 1482 with the um, just cause rental protection and, and rent caps that was passed four years ago, and that seems to have been the most significant piece of legislation as of late. Um, so maybe we can start with you, Assemblyman. Where do you see um, the state of tenant power in the Capitol right now? I think, I think tenant power is definitely increasing and building in the state Capitol. I think with the formation of the Rents Caucus for the first time ever, you're seeing this co concerted effort to take on renter-centered policies for the first time in a long time. I mean, before we had really great allies, right? uh, Assemblyman Chu, David Chu, uh, was a great ally when able to pass 1482 with now Attorney General Bonta, but they did it out of, you know, not the current lived experience, perhaps in the past they have that, but like without uh, having that keen voice of renters as a caucus, they were able to do those things. So I think now with our caucus, even though we are 5% of the legislature, I think we can accomplish a lot. I think in the last legislative session, I think there was like one substantive renter protection bill that passed, probably one, I think like one or so. I remember at the end, like we were like, there's no more. That was like, we lost most of them. But we do have, um, as I was pointed out, we do have a lot of good production bills that get through. We a lot of production bills get through, but we don't have the parity when it comes to rental protections. And I think there's a lot of common sense things left on the table that we're gonna pursue. Uh, the Rents Caucus is gonna be able to do that. So um, this time I think there's a stronger concerted effort rather than say one-off. So where I was, before Rents Caucus existed, I did my thing, someone did their thing, and now we're kind of leveraging it together. Even though we're just six, I think you can do a lot with six people. Gotcha, do you wanna talk about any of the common sense solutions that you alluded to? Yeah, well I think uh, my common sense may be different than others. But um, so I think honestly one thing that we really need to do is to revisit Costa Hawkins. We do not apply rent stabilization to single family homes, new homes, which are the ones coming up online right now, and a myriad of different homes. We should be applying uniform standards everywhere. I think the best case of economic planning, especially when it comes to housing, is when you have uniform standards, not county by county, not city by city, not this type of home by this type of home. It causes a lot of confusion for landlords, renters alike, and if people knew their rights and understood the market as it was, as one stable place, that's how it, would, how it should be. Uh, there are several Costa Hawken bill efforts this year, and you're going to see more and more conversation about that, I think, come forward. Okay, yeah, Shanti or Deborah, do you want to speak about this as well? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I agree with Assemblymember Lee. Uh, tenant power is building, and I mean, it's our job at Tenants Together to build it. <laughs> and again, we're, we're getting new member organizations forming, you know, faster than we can onboard them, uh, particularly in response to this COVID crisis. So, you know, there's... There's a lot of there's a lot of positive, you know. Obviously, the formation of the Renters Caucus. Um, there's definitely more conversation, more intersectional conversation between um, tenant groups and and organized labor, um, which is which is really critical because you know tenants are workers and workers are tenants, and it's. Um, but you know, so that's been really really inspiring to see, and I think is going to yield um, amazing results in the future, or better than the ones we've had before. Um, couple notes that I took about this, but you know, I think there is a, besides the problem of representation, right, in terms of which legislators rent, 
a, there's been a lot of, I mean, a lot of times I hear from legislators that they're just not hearing from their renter constituents. And also, if you're a tenant facing eviction, if you're working two jobs to feed your family and pay the rent and you're severely rent burdened, et cetera, you're, just, you're not necessarily going to have the same time that other people do to contact their state legislator. And we're trying to change that because, I mean, I'm not going to name any names, but I've had conversations where it, some legislators didn't even know how many renters were in their district. They underestimated it, even when it's like on the census data on their own website, right? So there needs to be, um, you know, what we're trying to do, and I think tenants as they're getting increasingly fired up because this housing crisis is not going away anytime soon. Um, what we're really trying to do is build tenant power also through political education and legislative engagement because it's necessary. Um, renters are just not, you know, they're not respected as constituents as much as property owners are. Um, and that's really not, I don't think that's very in the spirit of democracy. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Gotcha. Deborah, do you want to talk about this dynamic from the Apartment Association's sure. perspective? So, uh, Costa Hawkins, the Holy Grail. You talk about amending Costa Hawkins, and of course, every rental property owner will come out of the woodwork. You know, Costa Hawkins was passed in a time when the legislature saw extreme forms of rent control. The, those extreme forms of rent control had actually run tenants out of town. Remember, rent control is not means tested. So what you had in those situations were the wealthy renting, the landlord makes a decision about whose rent, and the low-income tenants were moving and having to move to neighboring cities. Um, you also had low construction rates. Berkeley's uh, construction rate came to a standstill, and even Berkeley's housing department admitted that in a study that they did. So the legislature said, look, we've got to put some safeguards in place when it comes to rent control. Um, Single-family homes um, should not fall under rent control. You want to lose a large population of rental housing, they can sell, and they'll sell to owners. So I don't think that's the answer. Um, and the legislature also looked at that when they were considering 1482. 1482 was the answer, not revisiting Costa Hawkins. So, you know, I think 1482... Um, and I'm sure we'll see legislation. But there was over 300 tenant organization and individual tenants that brought forth 1482. Um, I cannot, again, overstate what a big deal that was. Um, so I haven't seen legislation yet to change 1482. I'm sure it will be introduced uh, in the next week or so. But um, it's going to be a it's going to be a, a challenge for the industry. 1482 hasn't really taken effect because of COVID. Um, you know, we always argue we need a balance. If you want, uh, if your your goal is to stop investment, go ahead and pass strict forms of rent control. That's not the answer. We need a balance. So I think that's the, our message to the legislature. I just want to I just want to point out something is that we have these commonplace controls for homeowners. It's called a 30-year fixed mortgage. So we have these expectations where if you become a homeowner, you can enjoy these kind of benefits. As renters, you don't. And you know, look, today we still are in slump for production. It's not any much better. We're still having the same problems. And in fact, the housing affordability has only gotten worse since the 70s, or I should say since 1995 when I was born and Costa Hawkins was passed. But to say that 
one thing necessarily leads to the other, I think is a bit, a bit oversimplification in this case because we have plenty of developed democracies in this world, especially in Europe, that have very generous protections and stabilizations for residents of all types, homeowners or renters, and they also enjoy production. It's a wholesale systemic problem we need to be fixing, and also at the heart of it, of course, is production that does not have profit. The heart of it, social housing, is also a missing pillar of it. So I think there is a balance between things, and I don't think we necessarily need to be afraid of it, because also part of this renter's education is if you have renters moving around different cities, their rights change from zip code to zip code, and that is very confusing for people. Same thing for, for landlords that, that live in one city, rent in a different city. We need to have a uniform market, uniform standards, and that's all I'm asking for, is so that people understand the common marketplace they're playing in. And just one comment to that, because okay. I'd love to yes. talk with you. Yes. Um, <laughs> mortgage rates, I get that. Um, but remember, the homeowner pays for all the maintenance, the re-roofing, everything. Tenants don't. But that's why rents don't are not necessarily stabilized um, consistently and why they go up, because the landlord pays for all those costs. So again, a balance is, I think, what we're looking at here. Senator Chobo, do you want to add anything? I actually just want to, <clears throat> I do talk about, I know you had talked about the um, some of the pieces of legislation that we're going to be probably seeing in, in the coming year. But I just want to echo that, that conversation. Two, two observations based on the conversations that um, we had today. So one of the most important things that I, that I advocate for is that in order to have good policy in any space, we need to have all stakeholders at the table. And it's been very interesting to me in um, coming to the legislature that, you know, as legislators, you're, um, you're kind of What's the word I'm looking for? You're, you're kind of pigeonholed, either representing one component of a space or another component in the space. And in reality, they're interrelated in so many ways that if we are to act with as good intended um, policymakers, we need to have and represent all stakeholders at the table. So. Um, I, I actually appreciate this panel right here because you hear the different concerns and I, and I, as I'm hearing them, I'm going, okay, and my mind is thinking, you know, my mama brain, always trying to figure out how to, how to bring it together. Um, but it's very interesting to hear the different perspectives on, on this, on this end. Um, but before I lose my train of thought, <clears throat> really quick, the problem with having a one-size-fits-all with, with regards to policy and protections, really, it's very difficult to do, especially when you start considering the different ordinances within communities, within cities, um, and the different elements, like um, as um, Deborah mentioned, with regards to the cost of maintaining these properties. It's hard to have those caps when you are maintaining those those um, those um, um, those issues with with home because everything needs maintenance and, and there's a cost. As a realtor, I know that when I was dealing with my first time home buyers, I always said, just because you can purchase a property for 50% of your income does not mean that that is the wisest way to go. 
you know, don't spend more than 33% of your income on that. But once you purchase it, make sure that you set aside at least 10% of your income so that you can um, accumulate enough money for these emergency uh, repairs so that, your, so that your home increases in value and does not go into disrepair. It's about financial literacy. Um, so, but going back to um, the previous question, I just wanted to talk about a little bit and mention some of the bills that right now, um, um, the 2023 rental legislation that we're, that we're seeing, um, I'm not sure if it's all been um, commented on or not in previous panels, but right now under uh, a newly introduced bill, assembly bill, uh, would allow California cities would no longer be able to force landlords to evict renters based on alleged actions at or near the property. Um, the bill is AB 1418 by Assemblywoman Tina McKinner. She's from Inglewood and targets the most stringent versions of so-called crime-free housing policies adopted by some California cities. There's another bill, a Senate bill, introduced this year that would prohibit most California landlords from using criminal background checks as part of the tenant screening process. The legislation, SB 460, by Senator Aisha Wahab um, from Hayward, would create the Fair Chance Access to Housing Act and prohibit most rental housing providers from directly or indirectly, one, inquiring about an applicant's criminal history, two, requiring an applicant to disclose their criminal history, three, requiring an applicant to authorize the release of their criminal history. Um, <clears throat> a newly introduced bill would also limit a landlord's use of credit reports when screening prospective tenants with Section 8 housing vouchers or other government rent subsidies. The bill, SB 267 by Senator Susan Eggman uh, from Stockton would allow would only allow the use of credit reports when a voucher or other government rent subsidies is present if the lender offers the applicant a chance to show other evidence of their ability to pay the rent. If the applicant does so, the landlord would have to consider the evidence in lieu of the applicant's credit history in deciding whether to proceed with the tenancy. A similar bill last year um, by Eggman died in the Assembly Housing Committee. Uh, uh, and so forth. Um, so, and there's other issues right now that are being dealt with um, um, in the uh, in the courts. So, anyway, thought I mentioned yeah. those. Do you support those bills, or do you have any position on them? I haven't read all the specifics. These are just summaries from them, so they haven't come in front of me to have a, a holistic view on these. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah, I just want to kind of flows into my next question a little bit um, as the state and cities are moving forward with from COVID eviction protection. Some, some of them, we've kind of talked about this a little bit, but are kind of beefing up their tenant rights frameworks. For instance, the LA City Council recently passed an ordinance um, expanding some protections for renters. And um, I think we talked a little bit about this, but Senator Maria Elena Durazo tomorrow is going to announce a, a bill that will shore up 1482, which created statewide eviction protections and rent caps. Um, so maybe you all can speak to the effectiveness of or need for this kind of these kind of laws or, or ordinances. Maybe um, whoever wants to start. Maybe Shanti can go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I I'd be remiss if I didn't note that um, 2022 was actually an historic year for rent control in California. I think it's the first time that seven new municipalities who never had rent control passed rent control. And I have that list. Pasadena, Pomona, Bell Gardens, Fairfax, Antioch, Santa Ana, and Oxnard. And what's important to point out about that is that, that is, a lot of these places are places where you think you wouldn't pass rent control, right? 
you know, the, the, the need and the crisis is growing into places that politically have been hostile to it before, including, you know, we're, we're Orange County, first city, Ventura County, first city. Like, it's, it's amazing to see, but it is, really, it is really in response to the inadequacy of current protections. Now, I do want to make a really important point about 1482 that isn't being made. Um, and I think maybe, you know, we've just listened to two panels about land use mostly, and in land use, right, the problem is the, the laws can be onerous and people really get into the nitty gritty about them. With tenant law and tenant protection, it's the opposite. When tenants cannot enforce their rights and the legal mechanisms to enforce their rights are sorely lacking, then even those protections, even the weak ones, are not worth the paper that they're printed on. And that is a huge problem. We have a huge problem of enforcement of AB 1482. Constantly, our hotline at Tenants Together was inundated with people basically not even being able to enforce a clear violation that was pushing them out of their homes. Particularly, and keep in mind that with inflation, the 5% plus CPI cap of 1482 allowed for a 10% rent increase. Um, we saw that disproportionately inflicted on renters who were struggling to pay the existing rent and were waiting for rent relief funds. 10% um, is a lot. It's a lot, right? Um, and that's on top of the fact that I'm getting back to, which is that even when your rights are being violated, even if you are protected under 1482, and of course there are massive loopholes like single family homes, which are not, you know, just because single family and multifamily are different sizes of building does not necessarily mean that a mom and pop owns a single family home or a corporate landlord owns a multifamily. We shouldn't conflate those two things. Um, just a side note. But to go back to the enforcement point, it's just, you know, aside from the loopholes, we saw a lot, a lot of issues. We tried um, in 2020 to pass a piece of legislation that unfortunately did not pass um, from Senator DeRosso, uh, which was SB 1190. And that simply would have clarified the ability of local jurisdictions, city attorneys, county attorneys, district attorneys, whoever, to actually be able to protect tenants and make sure that landlords were following 1482. Unfortunately, that didn't pass, but you know, I think we really need to, when we think about what is a good balance, we also need to make sure that we're actually enforcing the laws that we pass. Um, and I can't talk a ton about what's in Senator DeRosso's proposal yet because the language isn't out. I have it, but I don't know what I'm allowed to say or not. Um, but you know, we will be addressing these issues. Patrick, does anyone else wanna, wanna speak to this? Deborah, uh, Assemblyman Lee. Seen um, the language, I think, um, you know, we wouldn't be here if we had enough housing, right? I mean, that's, that's our biggest challenge uh, that we have here. If you want to outsmart the market, <laughs> build more housing. It, it is challenging. I'm glad that the legislature has really uh, focused on that and is taking to task some of the local governments that are refusing to build housing. Um, so, Mayor really, you have some great bills. Uh, you know, uh, we support your social housing bill. Uh, we support your other bills that will promote housing production. What's going on in our local jurisdictions as well as commercial space is empty. Um, you walk past a lot of that uh, um, housing, or I should say it should be housing, let's put it that way. Adaptive reuse is what you're focusing on too. That would be so important. We see that downtown here. Um, buildings are just vacant. Um, commercial in some spaces are not coming back. 
honestly, that would be the quickest way to provide some housing going forward, and so we appreciate what you're doing with that. And, um, and those are the kind of bills that we believe should be supported um, and pushed forward um, this year. Gotcha. Alex, I don't want to leave you out. Do you have anything to add from the labor, from the labor space? <laughs> Like I said, since I'm the odd guy out here, I'm trying to figure out how all our issues relate to this. And I think, I think so much of what's being talked about is actually applicable so much to this discussion that we had earlier about skilled and trained standards and prevailing wages and wage theft. Um, and I, I think Shanti said something important about 1482 and just an enforcement and people understanding their rights. And I think that that, that actually provides a really perfect uh, analog for the wage theft discussion. Uh, I was looking for some numbers. I, I had them in, in, in my files over here. I know that uh, Assemblymember Wiggs talked about, um, you know, best wage theft protections. Like California has incredible laws on the books, um, but just to give you some, uh, gives you some ideas. Like we have incredible laws on the books for public works. We have incredible laws on the books uh, for um, for uh, private side construction. All these things, but it's always the question of enforcement and how. Uh, uh, at the end of the day. So when you think about how much, there was more than $65 billion of construction work in the state of California in 2019. If you take a look at the reports from the Department of Industrial Relations, so $65 billion of construction work, 300,000 state licensed contractors, there were 200, where's this number? There were about 232 inspections in the private construction industry in 2018-19 for, uh, for wage theft, with only 336 citations, only $3.3 million in penalties, um, and of which, uh, and $15 million in back wages, only 2% of which were collected. So we have these great laws on the books, we have these promises of, of we're going to be rolling out strong wage theft protections, but at the end of the day, it's how these things are enforced and whether or not uh, the people who are actually harmed by, uh, by the practices that these laws are intended to stop, whether or not they have the, the power to enforce it, whether it's because they're worried about their job or they're worried about their home um, or just you know their livelihoods uh, down the line. So it's, it's wonderful to, to pass uh, great laws, but I think it's all the more important to think through and listen from the people who actually, whose job is to help enforce them, how they'll actually work out on the ground at the end of the day. Totally, yeah, to all connected, definitely. Um, before we take questions from the audience, I want to throw in one more question um, about homelessness, which is, is very closely connected to rental housing. Um, so tenants who are evicted from their rental units obviously face an extremely uphill, almost impossible battle to find new housing. Um, so I'm curious to hear from folks, you know, what do you think needs to be done to keep those at risk of losing their homes housed? And also, you know, for folks who've been evicted or experiencing homelessness, like what can be done to help them find rental housing in the future? Um, so I don't know who wants to start. I'm like looking at people, maybe you can go ahead. I, I, will, I will start, I will start. Um, so as I said, we just had an oversight hearing both on housing and homelessness, both issues which are very much within my, within my interest. And it's interesting because we were trying to figure out with homelessness what the number one issue was. Um, you know, there is a discrepancy in some of the studies that I personally saw that I didn't care for. But I think we need to start really studying and really taking into account what are the sources of people being evicted or about to lose their home, because there's different approaches. Um, you know, when we talk about 
rental assistance, um, you know, it's, it's really difficult when you hear from the landlord side um, with regards to, um, um, not the landlord side, I'm sorry, employment. Talk, let's talk about employment, and, and we're talking about wages. Employment, when we're talking about different businesses, um, nonprofits that are in different spaces, whether it's manufacturing or whether it's um, distributions or nonprofits, whatever it may be, restaurants, who cannot fully be staffed. And that's one of the biggest concerns that we have for, for many of these, uh, these people who need employees um, who are working at, I don't know, anywhere between 70, 80, 85% of their capacity because they just can't hold people to work within their space for various reasons. But the number one, priority, number one reason is they just can't hold, and nobody wants to come and work with these, um, at these, in, these in these jobs. So we need to try to figure out that we don't create policy that disincentivizes people from going to work, um, from needing to have to work um, on that end. Um, number two, I think when it comes to um, homelessness in housing or people who are about to lose their, their property, whether or not behavioral health is an issue and making sure that we have um, systems in place to give people the support system so that they can actually be able to keep employment on there. That's when I talk about people who are about to lose their, their, their housing, try to figure out what the, the source is. Is it employment? Is it the fact that it's behavioral health that impedes them from, from pursuing employment? Um, we also have to be considerate of people who have been formerly incarcerated um, and their ability to gain employment or have the skills before they leave to have, be able to gain employment and be able to enter the system. I know that there's been policy to protect those individuals from um, obstacles that would hinder them from either getting employment or be able to be housed. I actually have a bill right now that would help um, um, build projects for people who uh, were formerly incarcerated. We just um, added the language on that end. Um, but there's a lot of factors that we need to take in consideration right now and making sure that we have those safety nets for people who actually have a need um, on that end. So I think we're working towards that policy. I think we're aware of it. And I think that's where we're going to make sure that we have those safety nets um, for those people that are in need. I think I answered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I'm like, I think I got it all. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Does anyone else want to weigh in? Yeah. yeah. Oh, sh maybe Shanti and then you, Alex. Um, I could go on for this about this for an hour. I won't. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, uh, one of the easiest no-brainers I have to start with is, is right to counsel. Um, I think that the national figure is, I think it's like 90% of tenants don't have a lawyer when they go to eviction court, which means that they don't go to eviction court, they get scared and they move into their cars. That, that is what happens, right? 80 to 90% of landlords have representation in eviction court, 80 to 90% of tenants do not, right? So that is, you don't have access to the law when the deck is stacked against you like that. And that does create homelessness. I mean, we see it every day, people get scared. That's a lot to go up against without anyone there to help you. Um, uh, no, no public, def no public defenders for eviction. Although, I mean, San Francisco now has that essentially, uh, but they're the only city that's passed a universal right to counsel. Um, so yes, there is no public defender for tenants, even if your eviction is potentially, you know, bogus. Um, you know, there are legitimate evictions and there are not illegitimate evictions, but you can't really 
you can't really defend yourself. Um, and that does lead to a lot of homelessness because people don't know their rights, people are scared. Um, Assemblymember Lee's already talked about social housing, um, but I'll, I just, I will say that according to the National Low Income Housing Coalition, we have a one million unit shortage for low income people alone, just in California. Um, and we need, to, we need to address that. It's, you know, there's a lot of talk about, oh, housing first solutions won't work. And the thing is, we've never tried a housing first solution in California, so I don't know how you can say that it won't work. Um, and, you know, uh, I, again, I can't talk a ton about what's in Senator Durazo's bill yet, but, you know, we are named, we did name this AB 1482 expansion and improvement bill the Homelessness Prevention Act for a reason. Um, tenants' rights is homelessness prevention. Um, there's sometimes, I think, something that mystifies me in some political discourse, particularly among some elected officials, um, where, you know, obviously the number one issue that Californians care about is homelessness. Polling shows that time and time again. But there's this sense where sometimes I see people asking, it's like, well, where did all these homeless people come from? And it's like, the answer is they were evicted. Um, most homeless people, we'll talk about homelessness in San Francisco a lot, that's where I live. Um, I think it's something on the order of probably 80 to 90% of people who are unhoused in San Francisco were, uh, lived when they last had housing, lived in the Bay Area. They were evicted most of the time, judicially or extrajudicially. Um, 15, and uh, you know, another San Francisco statistic, 15% of homeless people in San Francisco are still employed. They're somehow trying to hold down a job on top of all of the hardship that they're enduring, on top of not having a roof over their head. So that's, again, I could go on for another hour, but you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And the number one thing that we need to focus on is keeping people housed, because even if you don't care about the human rights aspect of it or the compassion aspect of it, if you just care about dollars and cents, it is way more expensive to get a tenant back into housing after they have been evicted, after they're already homeless. It is way more expensive than to just keep them there in the first place. Catch it. Alex, you want to add something? Yeah, I mean, pivot off uh, of, of what Shanti was saying. I mean, I think the takeaway here is that homelessness breaks people. And then, and then putting them back together is, in, is incredibly difficult and expensive. So we need to do everything that we can to keep them from falling into homelessness. But in terms of like helping people up and out, um, there's a guy who I see on on Twitter. He's an IBW Local 617 member. He's formerly incarcerated, spent a bunch of time, I think in San Quentin, I think he was in Folsom uh, for a felony of some sort and came back and he entered our apprenticeship program. And it's, and it's you know, obviously bringing it back to the building trades, it's like, granted construction isn't for everyone. There's no doubt about it. It takes, it takes a, a certain type of person who wants to do that type of work, be outside, do that work. It's dangerous work. Uh, and it's and it's ephemeral. It, it goes it goes up uh, back and forth. But for people who that does fit, apprenticeship programs are a tremendous opportunity. It's like you you can find this guy. I can't remember his name right now, but you can find him on Twitter. Uh, like I've interviewed, um, I've interviewed members back when I was with the Carpenters Union years ago. There was uh, there was a woman who. Um, just a, a, a tremendous story, and we were talking about the value of prevailing wages and, and them really un supporting and undergirding the apprenticeship system. Uh, she literally was homeless. She had, uh, you know, she had fallen into homelessness, uh, uh, gotten hooked on something or other, and it was through uh, trades, affiliated 
apprenticeship programs uh, that, and pre-apprenticeship programs that helped her straighten out her life, helped her uh, stabilize herself, get her you know, onto a path to a sustainable career. And, and then years later, once she journeyed out and she became a, 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 you know, a full-fledged full member, uh, as it were, uh, getting, getting the wage, she herself was giving back and, and supporting homeless shelters and, and you know, the institutions and that helped her uh, get out of it. But, you know, but all that is incredibly hard work and we're just better off keeping people from falling into homelessness. Totally, yeah. And I'm getting a signal that we probably want to take some audience questions. Thank you so much for to all our panelists. Um, yeah. So, and I do have a question, uh, came in remotely. So, Airbnb has come in around the same time that the, the housing crisis sort of emerged as an issue. And I'm wondering if our panel or anyone on the panel can speak to that. Has that really played a role in changing the rental market to taking rentals off of the, uh, off of the market that would otherwise be, be housing people, but instead they're now a vacation rental that is maybe empty half the time. Is that playing any kind of a, of a role in this? I'll speak to some of that, and I know that uh, uh, the Assemblymember and Senator may have more information from their cities and counties, but we see cities and counties don't like it. So we're seeing ordinances passed to say no, or they're capping them. We even um, uh, sponsored legislation that forced Airbnb to say on their site uh, you might not be allowed to do this. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we wanted an outright, you know, ban in some cases, but now they have to put on their um, site that you, and even as a tenant, um, you are not supposed to be Airbnb your unit. Um, it's typically a violation, especially if you're, <laughs> you're, you're collecting a higher price under the Airbnb and not uh, in paying that and, and keeping the rest of the money, that's not okay. So that's what we're seeing in at least a lot of the local ordinances. Yeah, and I would just, I would just add that uh, I agree that a lot of localities are renting it in where a lot of Airbnbs are now, to the extent where the owner has to be there or there's a lot of restrictions in place. It's not really about enforcement right now. I think that's the hard part of it is, you know, when you're living up to a city or a county to do these things and they, they don't have the capacity to do that and really verify that's happening. So there's still a lot of work to be done there. I don't doubt, especially in the early days of Airbnb, that the effect of turning rentals into micro rentals really hurt not just tenants, but hotels, other landlords, really manipulate the market in such a drastic way that you saw that kind of reigning in effect. Uh, and just one thing I wanted to add also to the conversation is just in general is that, um, slightly different from this or related to this, is that if it is socially desirable amongst our policy to protect small mom and pop landlords, we can do that. And when we work on the Ellis Act, I really try very hard to make sure to protect those people because because there is a vast difference between grandma and grandpa who have five properties and Blackstone that owns cities basically across the country. There's a big difference. And I think the California people understand that difference and there is very deliberate and smart way to, to make sure that our policies target different disparities. Just as we talk about different incomes of renters, there are different classifications and categories of landlords out there, very, very different from one another too. We have a question over here too, unless someone was gonna keep addressing that. Thanks. Um, yeah, one thing that I haven't heard touched on um, today is the fact that uh, the LA Times reported that uh, California has lost hundreds of thousands of, of uh, people, citizens and businesses that have left, uh, frankly, uh, more business-friendly climates. A lot of those businesses that we've lost are developers and home builders that are going to develop in Austin, Phoenix, Idaho, because um, it makes more economic sense. 
Um, and I hear a lot of talk about the legislation being targeted. It seems kind of targeting the, the landlords. And uh, I'm wondering if there's any legislation you all can speak to that, um, that might be proposed or that's coming up um, or that you support um, that would provide incentives to developers. Because at the end of the day, it's the developers and their bankers that decide where they're going to build and whether it makes sense. And I agree, we need more housing. That's, you know, my, my business is, is involved in creating more housing in Sacramento. So um, if you could speak to that, that'd be great. The assembly member and the senator can speak to um, our list that we've identified with the California Apartment Association, 383 bills that we are tracking. Um, and a lot of that is, is incentive-based. Um, adaptive reuse, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of, of we're looking at, um, you know, CEQA is a big, uh, challenge for the industry. When it takes you five to ten years to build housing, that's a huge problem. And when you have CEQA being used as a battleground to stop and interfere with housing unjustly, um, it should be used um, as it was intended. But I think that is, is a big problem. And of course, landlords can't wheel their properties out of California. And as I mentioned earlier, the vacancy rates are climbing as a result of, of COVID and people leaving the state. Um, I'll just quickly say, I mean, the, a lot of panels and speakers before us already said this, but, you know, it's the 5,000 ton elephant in the room. We, you know, developer incentives and streamlining is one thing, but we're not going to crack this nut without massive public investment. It's just not going to happen. So, you know, I mean, I, I'm not going to dispute your own personal, uh, experience or at least what you've seen on your end but what the numbers show is that production in phoenix production in austin production in all these areas really around the country has gone into the toilet um and the fact that i think that we've been flat as a uh, flat on the multifamily side with some slight increases on the single family side are probably indicative that it's not as bad as as folks say the the other part is that from a public policy perspective, if we constantly keep chasing the returns of the bankers, they will always try to get a little bit more, or they will go to another, or they will point to another investment vehicle and say, "Well, this one's given me three percent more. You gotta, you gotta make it a, uh, you gotta make it attractive for me to go the, here instead of there." And that's where I think um, uh, the the social housing conversation that's really blossomed over the past few years uh, is. Uh, Ought, ought to be headed because let's face it we do not we have absolutely no compunction about uh, uh, building uh, building roads with 100% debt financing we have no problem extending these payment periods over 30 years or not 30 years over 56 uh, 75 years you've got uh, federal infrastructure uh, financing that can help uh, extend repayment over 75 years we have a lot of mechanisms to actually start building housing and actually build housing that's affordable to people. It's whether or not we're using them uh, to, to their fullest extent. Awesome. I think that's pretty much it. Thank you so much for it doing, is two doing thank you. Thank you so much to our yeah, panelists so and Lindsay Old. Yeah. Thanks a lot for coming. And uh, The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.